Morning. I'm just going to pray for Phil before he speaks to us. Um, so, Phil, if you come forward. Dear Lord God, we just thank you that, um, as Kev said, we can come to this place and we can worship you. Um, sometimes we take it for granted when we're tired and worn out and life gets us down. Um, but we have got your word, as we said about Jill last night. She's got you, Lord God, to turn to in all of her troubles. And for those who haven't got anything, it's unbelievable how they make it through their days and their years. And we just thank you for Phil, that he's taking his time to come and speak your word. Um, that he feels that uh, this is his duty um, to please his father. We just pray now that he will speak words that are simple, but that will open our eyes to see your glory, to see your love, and to see what your son did for us on the cross. And one day that we will be with you forever in no more pain, no more suffering. And we just pray now that Phil will open our eyes to heaven and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when I got the email from Margaret for the subject for this morning, I had to smile. In fact, it's the second time I've had an email which made, you, made me smile from you. The first time was when, um, a few years ago, you gave me the subject of humility to preach on. And my wife smiled and said, you'll be preaching from theory and not from practice. Um, and I assured her the Lord had given us wives to keep us humble. But this time she gave me a passage from Matthew chapter 24. Well, the reason I smiled was because four years ago, I was invited to preach on Mark chapter 13, which is the parallel passage from Mark's gospel. And I said to my wife with a smile, do you think they'd notice if I preached exactly the same sermon? Um, I wouldn't tell you what you said, but the words were, you're not going to. Um, So we've got something a bit different this morning, uh, but it's the same passage. In fact, I think I've got one slide on my PowerPoint, which is the same as I used four years ago. I won't embarrass you and ask you if you can spot it, or even what I preached about four years ago, but I will highlight that to you when we get to it. So Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24, and it says this, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, watch out so that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. If that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible in the, even in the west, so will, the son of the, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all of these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And just to add in for the context, verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Amen. If you put up the uh, first sign, I I like to very often give my sermons a heading. Uh, I don't know if anybody recognizes this uh, phrase, sign of the times. Anybody a fan of music? If you grew up in my era, this was the Bell Stars. Do you remember the Bell Stars? Or if you're a bit more into rock, Europe. Remember Europe, the Sign of the Times? Or even if you're a bit of a later fan, it's Harry Styles did a song called Sign of the Times. So that's the title for our talk this morning from Matthew 24. Well, let's pray first of all. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, when we read it, so some of these things we look at and we think, how are we going to ever understand them? But Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power, you'll take your word. You're enlightened it. You're a help us to apply it to our lives. And most of all, Lord, that you'd use it to draw us closer to yourself. Lord, that as we go from this place, that we will meditate upon it. Lord, that it will be used to draw us closer to you, to love you more, and to want to be active in sharing your word with those around us. Amen. Amen. There's a headline on the BBC website. Oops, too far on the BBC website the other day, which said this, that the repairs to the Houses of Parliament could cost £5.7 billion. 
And then it went on, I think it was the Daily Mail, so I do take it with a pinch of salt when you see a headline in the Daily Mail. Uh, but, you know, that's what they were referring to. And it's like all the things that you could do with £5.7 billion. Pounds. How many hospitals you could build, how much good you could do, how much tax could be reduced. But at the end, they quoted an MP was saying, we don't really have an option. The Houses of Parliament are a symbol of our democracy, about the stability of our society. We've got to do everything that we can to preserve them. £5.7 billion it could cost. That's a lot of money, isn't it? We don't really have a choice. You see, for us, it's the Houses of Parliament, for Big Ben. But for back in those times, you see, it was the temple. For the Jewish nation, that was a symbol of their nation. That was a symbol of solidarity. The temple that was built, they probably thought, must would have lasted forever. It was an amazing building. Sorry, I'm doing... No, thank you very much. This is a picture of a model of what the town and the temple would have looked at at that time. Built of gold mar- uh, white marble and gold. They said that some of the cornerstones of that building were up to 100 tons. How on earth they ever moved 100 tons of that JCBs and everything else? I don't know. But it was an amazing building. And the disciples thought this was going to last forever. And yet Jesus said to them, no, look, this building is going to come to an end. This world is going to come to an end. And in verse 35, there is only one thing that is going to last forever. And that is my word. Well, they wouldn't have realized it, but it wasn't too many years' time in AD 70 when this building, the temple, was laid to waste. And that's why I think that Jesus said some in this generation will see it. What happened? There was an uprising against the Romans in Judea. And they chased the people that were revolting back into Jerusalem. And they surrounded the city. And if you know anything about history, you know the Romans were pretty good at laying siege to a city. And they basically said to them, If you try and escape, we'll kill you. And every day as people tried to escape, the Romans caught them and crucified them outside the city walls to try and deter the people within inside Jerusalem. Some thought they ought to surrender. Some thought they ought to fight. In fact, one lot was so zealous that they burnt all the food supplies that were in Jerusalem to try and force the people to fight. We're friends like that. Who needs enemies, right? And then eventually the Romans attacked, broke through the wall. And the estimates are in AD 70, anywhere between 500,000 to a million Jews were killed by the Romans as they put down that revolt. The temple was laid to waste. Not one stone was left on top of another. Nothing lasts forever. The temple won't last forever. This world will not last forever. There is only one thing that will last forever, and that is the word of God. And the disciples hear this and they ask this simple question that we would probably want to ask as well. When's it going to happen? And how do we know it's going to happen? And then Jesus launches into the longest answer that we have in Scripture. I suppose it's an understandable question, isn't it? And when you read some of this answer, sometimes we scratch our heads to understand perhaps what Jesus is saying. The simple answer is that nobody really knows. That's why I read verse 36. We can have signs like the fig tree, but we don't know when Christ was coming back again. But there are some things that I think he tells us. First of all, he tells us what to expect before he comes. Secondly, he tells us what to expect when he comes. And thirdly, I think he says what we ought to do until he comes. Now, 
This is the same slide as I showed you last time. Do you remember this that I was taught as a boy in Sunday school? The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And if you read some of this and you scratch your head, particularly between verses 15 to 22, when it talks about uh, there the uh, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, you're going to have to ask me back for a third time on this passage because we're not going to touch that today. So I'm very sorry if you came for an answer to verses 15 to 22. But with this in mind, I just want to concentrate on what I think are the plain things that we are being told this morning. What to expect before he comes, what to expect when he comes, and what we ought to be doing because he's coming. So the first thing is this. What are we to expect before he comes? I'm not sure I can read that. I can read that. There we are. Well, first of all, we're to expect in verses 6 to 8 the disruption of creation. The disruption of creation. It seems that you can hardly turn on the news or read your newspaper in the last few weeks and months about hearing about many of these things. The picture in the top left-hand corner is the flooding that they've had in Kerala in the south of India where many, many have died. The right-hand corner, that's Indonesia. The death toll keeps on seeming to going up and up from the earthquakes that they had there a few weeks ago. And then you've got still the fighting that's happening in Syria. It seems that we're reading of these things all of the time. But if you're really sad, you can go onto Wikipedia. And of course, if it's on Wikipedia, it must be right. But some of the things on Wikipedia are right. And you can go onto Wikipedia and you can read there the world's worst disasters. And it lists the worst earthquakes and the worst uh, famines uh, and the worst things that have happened. And all of these things that happen don't even make the list of the top 20 of any of those. But we live in a world that is beginning, almost it seems, to fall apart. And then there is a temptation sometimes, and we see this happening, to say, where is God in all of this? Does God exist if all of these things are happening? See, when I hear of wills, of famines, and of earthquakes, it doesn't make me think, does God not exist? But it makes me think God does exist. What did Jesus say? I've told you all of these things so you won't be alarmed or shocked. He told us that this is what we've got to expect. I remember when my wife was pregnant and we went to uh, uh, birthing classes or whatever. You, I can't remember what they call them now, but you know, with the. Uh, I tell you what, sometimes I want to put my fingers in my ear and go, la, 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 la. So, yeah, some of the things they said that would happen before you gave birth, I just think, thank goodness I'm not a woman. You know, I'm a big scaredy cat. But you know, these things are happening. They're like birth pangs. But you know that it is the prelude to something better that will happen. I thought this is going to hurt. Won't be too good for Val either, is it? You know, but this is what's going to happen. There will be upset in creation. There will be disruption. And this is what we need to expect. But secondly, not only will there be disruption for creation, but there is also going to be as well distress for God's people. Distress for God's people. And this is the part I want to major about this morning. The first thing I'll put it here that we read of is there is going to be persecution. Persecution. Do you ever sometimes think, Lord, why do you let this happen to me? I try to love you. I try to follow you. I try to do what you want me to. And yet these things happen. And yet the Bible tells us we must expect persecution. Because they hated him. In the same way they're going to hate us as well. What sort of persecution is there in the world? Well, I heard a woman speak. So if you put up the next one. 
There's an amazing lady who's a North Korean lady, a Christian lady called Hei Wu. And she speaks here about the time that she spent. She had an amazing background. Her husband escaped from North Korea um, and went to China and became a Christian. But he was caught and brought back and died in the prison camp. Her daughter in her 20s starved to death in a famine that they had in 1997 in North Korea. And she too had become a Christian and she was taken into the prison camps of North Korea. And she said this, when she arrived, the guard said, do not try to escape, you'll be killed. They were merciless, they kicked me and beat me with sticks. Christians are killed or locked up for the rest of their lives in concentration camps. Constantly there were people dying. Death was a part of our daily life. The bodies were usually burned and the guards scattered the ashes on the path. Every day we walked down that path and I always thought one day the other prisoners will be walking over me. Yet even in this labor camp that like hell on earth, she said, God is at work. He helped me to survive. Even more, he gave me a desire to evangelize amongst the other prisoners. He showed me whom I should approach. God used me to lead five people to faith. We met together out of the view of the guards that was often in the toilet, and we held the short service. I taught them Bible verses and some songs that we sang almost inaudibly. And her favorite song she sang was Amazing Grace. There have been so many moments, she said, in my life when I should have died, but I'm still alive thanks to God's amazing grace. Isn't that amazing, that persecution that those people suffered? I wonder what our response would have been to that. It says here that many will give up the faith because of the persecution. I wonder whether we fall within that many, or whether we would be like Haywu. Open Doors do a little booklet, a little uh, called the World Watch List of 2018 of the world's most persecuted countries for Christians. Top of the list is North Korea. Secondly, Afghanistan. Thirdly, Somalia. Fourthly, Sudan. No real surprises there. But if you go down the list, in the top ten, India, the Maldives, Egypt, Indonesia, Turkey, places where we go on holiday, places you see on your TV. And yet there are people there suffering and being persecuted for being a Christian. There is persecution in this world for those who follow Christ. But there's also as well, if you put up the next slide as well, there's not only persecution abroad, but there's also, I think as well, also the Barnard's Fund. I don't know whether you get the Barnard's Fund newsletters. This is the headline I had uh, from the newsletter I had at the beginning of the week from the Barnard's Fund. You can read them there. I can't read all the way back over there. But, you know, these are the headlines. People that are suffering for their faith. People that are being uh, cruelly killed. People that are having their homes taken away from them. Churches that are under threat. Uh, Jonathan Bradford, some of you may know him, tells me that their church where they are abroad, they have armed guards just in case Muslims try and throw a bomb through the front door. Well, I know the people of Payton may not like you sometimes, but I don't think anyone's going to do that here, could they? But not only is it abroad, if you put up the next slide as well, but it's also happening in this country as well. The guy in the top left-hand corner, anybody recognize him? He's a man called Richard Page, 69. They always tell you that in newspapers, don't they? He was a magistrate who was thrown out from being a, a magistrate because he exposed the view that as a Christian... He believed that children were best adopted by people where they were a mother and father as opposed to a gay couple. And the girl below him is a a nurse 
who was a sister, 15 years' experience. We read how few nurses there are, and yet she's been disciplined and been threatened to be thrown out of the profession, Sarah Kutat, because she offered to pray with somebody before they were going to surgery. And the people in the bottom right-hand corner, you no doubt know these people, the ashes from the bakery in Belfast who refused to cook that cake in support there of uh, gay pride. Are we under pressure in this country? Some people think we as Christians bellyache about the pressure that we're under. If you read that quote up there in the top right-hand corner, do you see who it comes from? Not a Christian, but a Muslim imam in Oxford who says this, Christianity is under siege in this country. Britain's national religion has never been so marginalized and derided by the public institutions that should be defending it. That's the view of an imam. There is persecution that is happening in this country today. We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said it would happen before he comes again. There's persecution for God's people. And what did our response ought to be to that? If you put up the next slide. No, sorry, go back one. Then it says this. There are three responses that we ought to have. First of all, that we shouldn't deny him or turn away. Don't deny me or turn away. Isn't it sad that many are going to do that? But this is actually, he says, it's a continuing action in the Greek. It's something that we need to do time and time again. It's not an easy option. But we need to stay firm. We need to stay focused. Time's going on. Not only do we not turn away, but it also says as well that we shouldn't be deceived. That we shouldn't be deceived. If you put up the next slide... How can deception take place? Well, someone will appear, it says, and say, I'm the Messiah. Do you remember this guy in the top left-hand corner? Anybody recognize him? David Icke. David Icke. Used to play in goal for Coventry City. And then one day he was a sports presenter and turned and declared himself to be the Messiah. Well, pardon me, but I think the Messiah may play in goal for Man United rather than Coventry City. I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> and then the next lady to is a lady who was actually... Uh, in the, bottom, uh, in the right-hand corner, it was a girl who um, was born in London but actually spent most of her life in Exeter. And if you go to the Imperial Pub in Exeter for a meal, you'll see there is a plaque to this lady here, Joanna Southcott. She was a girl who was a Christian, a very keen Christian, but she started to do, um, develop some fairly wacky ideas. Um, and she wrote a load of prophecies when she was alive about 200-odd years ago. And this was taken up. Uh, we're going on holiday on, on Friday, and my wife and I have um, got the thing. We're trying to stay in every county in England as a married couple. And we've got down to the bottom of the list now, because we're going to Bedfordshire in Northamptonshire. And I'm beginning to realize why we haven't been there, because when you Google it, there isn't an awful lot to do, I think, in Bedfordshire or Northamptonshire. But we've got a friend who actually comes from Flittick in Bedfordshire. Oh, he said, I know where you're staying, he said. Uh, Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, he lived in Bedford. And in fact, where you're staying is the inspiration for what they call the Valley of Despair in Pilgrim's Progress. So, you know, when anybody says to you that question, you're going on holiday, are you going anywhere nice? My response is, we're going to the Valley of Despair on holiday next week. But, you know, one of the reasons I say that is that as I was doing some research and they referred to this lady, there was a thing in Bedford called the Panacea Society. Uh, and there's a museum in Bedford that I think we're probably going to see next week where this lady's writings became the focus for a group and about 70-odd followers. And do you know what they believed? 
that Bedford was the original place of the Garden of Eden, and that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to Bedford. Well, I've seen the pictures on the internet. I haven't been there yet, but I don't think Jesus is going to come back to Bedford somehow. I don't know. I might be wrong. But 70-odd followers got together. They raised enough money for a house in which they lived as a commune, and that's now a museum. You see, sometimes people deceive with the best of intentions. The bottom guy behind that is a, a chap who was a great biblical scholar, and uh, he wrote to Irving to say that Jesus Christ, from his studies, was going to come back in 1843. He studied Daniel. He saw in there the introduction of income tax and about Louis XVI of France and the French Revolution. And he declared quite rightly that 1843, well, he died in 1834 before he ever came to realize that it was wrong. But he was a man who had great intentions, but yet he deceived the people. The Bible Code was written a few years ago. I don't know whether any of you bought a copy. It was one of an international bestseller. It seemed to tell people what you could work out as to when Christ was coming back again from the code that was there. Perhaps written with good intentions. And then the guy on the bottom left out in the corner, I don't know if anybody remembers him, Jonathan Smith, the man who founded the Mormons, grew up with a Christian background, and yet deceived so many millions in this world. We're in a world where there is deception. Some of it is just plain wacky. Some of it is dangerous. Waco siege, you may remember that from years ago, where they all committed suicide on that ranch in Texas. Some of it is misguided, like Irving. Some of it is just plain wrong, like Jonathan Smith. Some of it, you know, I think is very sad and insidious in the church, where we are told almost as though political correct Christianity. I've told you before about a church in Exeter where I was asked to go and preach and take a wedding and a couple from our church who were getting married and um, neither of them uh, had a Christian background and they had many friends and family coming who weren't Christians. And when they asked me to preach, Phil, they said, make sure you preach the gospel. And I said to this guy at this church, I said, thank you very much for sharing your pulpit with me. I said, I've been asked to preach the gospel. Oh, he said, we don't preach about the cross here. We like to concentrate on the Sermon on the Mount. Because what's really important is that we live good and kind, charitable lives and help one another. I tell you what, he's got some wacky ideas, isn't he? See, I think they're dangerous because he gets 70 or 80 people along to his church on a Sunday morning. And yet he won't preach about the cross. He had a poster up in the outside of his church a few months ago. I tell you, if I'd had a spray can of paint with me, I would have done criminal damage, despite the fact I'm a lawyer and a preacher. But do you know what it said? It's not the destination that counts, only the journey. I don't think I read that from Matthew chapter 24. It's the destination that's important that Christ is coming again. And sometimes the deception that comes is the fact that at the end of the day that there are people who are leading us away from the truth of Scripture. And then lastly, as well, as he says, don't grow cold. My secretary is very kind enough at work sometimes to make me a nice cup of tea. I don't let her make coffee because her coffee-making skills aren't very good. She doesn't drink coffee. But when she says, Phil, do you want a cup of tea? And she puts it on my desk. Sometimes the phone will go or I'll get engrossed in something else. And as I reach over and I pick up the cup of tea, suddenly as I start to sip it, I realize it's gone cold. And I hate cold tea. Now, if I was my mother, I'd put it in the microwave and warm it up again because you can't let it go to waste, can you? But, you know, what I do is I sort of make sure my secretary's not looking out of her room. I creep down the stairs and I pour it down the sink and I make myself another cup of tea because I can't stand cold tea. See, things that are cold lose their flavor, they lose their appeal. And I don't think it's any wonder that the church and the Christian faith has lost its appeal in the society in which we live because a lot of us have grown cold. 
How can we be appealing? And I think some of it is because when we start publicly professing Jesus Christ, then privately I think our love affair with him grows cold as well. You know what it is when somebody meets somebody for the first time? They can't stop talking about them, can they? You wonder what else happens in their life. And yet whether you've been married 20, 30, 40 years ago, there's a lot of us don't even mention our wives sometimes, do we? We talk about the football and the weather and work and everything else. And you wonder sometimes whether that love affair has grown cold. Don't give up. Don't be deceived. Don't grow cold. Then there's a third thing as well, which I think is probably a bit more encouraging. If you put up the next slide as well. It says in verse 14, not only is there going to be disruption of creation, not only is there going to be distress for God's people, but in verse 14 there's also going to be a declaration of the gospel as well. The gospel of this kingdom will be preached in the whole world. Now, if we were reading this a hundred odd years ago, you wonder how that was going to happen. We need to send out missionaries to send it, and I think that's still important that people go with the message of the gospel. But you know, I'm on quite a few committees, probably far too many for my own good. Some of them are incredibly boring. And I'm sorry to my fellow trustees, but sometimes we are boring in some of our trustee meetings. But one of the ones I love going to is in London. And on the mornings, uh, when we have do all the business in the afternoons, but we meet together in the morning and we have reports from people that we've financed. And we had a guy come from Sat 7. I don't know if you've ever heard about Sat 7. They're broadcasting the gospel to all sorts of different uh, difficult countries to actually reach. See, the problem is you think the internet may be the answer to everything. But the problem with the internet is that people can keep a watch on your digital trace, your digital footprint as to where you've been. But if they're preaching the gospel by, over the internet, on the t- over by the satellite onto TV, nobody knows what you're watching on the TV. And they are reaching tens of millions of people with the gospel every day in all sorts of different countries and nationalities where the gospel cannot be openly preached, even in North Korea and Trans World Radio. And our friends, the Kimbers, who work out there, broadcasting to some parts of North Africa, very strident and militant Muslim countries, and yet the gospel is being preached. Those are what to expect before he comes. And then far more briefly, verses 29 to 31, we need to say what we'll expect when he comes. But the first thing I put there is the fact that it's going to be a personal return of Jesus Christ. He isn't going to just send some angel to call us home or to show us the way. But he's coming back himself. It says the Son of Man will come. I love that picture, don't you? If you ask me what heaven's going to be like, I can say you can read Revelation. Does that really explain it? I don't think it does. But you know, there's only one thing I want to know about heaven. That's where... Jesus is. And that's the great comfort we have as the Christian faith, isn't it? That when we ask Christ into our lives, he promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. He's there when we live our lives. He's there in our dying moments. He's there when we get to heaven. What does he say to the thief upon the cross? Today you will be in paradise. No, I love the way he put it. Today you will be with me in paradise See, the location was secondary. What was important was who we were with. I may have told you the story before, but I'm getting old, so I'll repeat myself. When I was a youngster, I was, I don't know, about five or six. 
And we were shopping in Prince's Hay in Exeter with my dad one Saturday morning. And my dad at that time, remember this was the 70s, he used to have this canary yellow sports jacket. It was horrific. Yeah, anyway, even at five or six, I knew that was a a fashion crime. But there we are. And I was holding his hand as we were walking through uh, Prince's Hay. And all of a sudden, something caught my eye in one of the shops. And I can't even remember what it was. And I ran across to have a look at it. And when I got fed up of looking at it in the shop window, I came back. And I grasped the hand of who I thought was my dad. And I looked up. And this guy looked down. And it wasn't my dad. Now, I don't know how I could have held his hand because he didn't have a yellow sports jacket on. But I don't know who more afraid. Him for the fact that I was holding my hand or the fact that this little kid was there. And I just let out this almighty shriek, Dad! And I remember this sort of feeling of fear that came over me. And I remember... 40-odd years ago later, 45 years later, you know, virtually word for word what my dad said. He came across, and you know what he said? Sorry, it's mine. Didn't even say he's mine, but he said, it's mine. And he took my hand out of the man's hand, and he held it tightly and said, come on, son, we're going home. And I just remember, despite the fact he'd been so rude to me, suddenly those feelings of fear and trepidation had gone. I was with my dad. He was holding my hand, and suddenly everything was okay. And you know, that's what it's going to be like when Christ comes back. Or even if Christ calls us home before he comes back, what happens when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? What's the promise we have? I will be with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. When Christ comes back, he's going to send someone else and we'll say, is it really him? It's going to be him who's going to come for us. It's going to be a personal coming. It's going to be a universal coming as well. He isn't just coming back to Bedford, but all nations of the earth will see. Oh, I love to get in conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses. You ask them about the Lord coming back, they said in October 1914. That was what they prophesied. Oh, yes, he did come back, but he stayed for a while and went away again, but nobody really knew. <laughs> they get a bit embarrassed by that. What does my Bible? I don't think they've read this chapter from Matthew chapter 24. It must be different in their Bibles. But all the peoples of the world will see. It's going to be universal, it's going to be visible. He's going to come in power and in great glory. I haven't got a clue what that's going to be, but it's going to be loud, isn't it? There's going to be the trumpet sound that's going to go. But also notice as well, it's going to cause great division as well. For some, there's going to be mourning. That sort of feeling of being crushed in spirit. There's going to be too late. But for Christians, there's going to be great joy when he comes again. Isn't that amazing? That's what we've got to expect when he comes. And then lastly, what are we going to do until he comes? Well, we had an old boy in our church. He always used to talk to me about living in the light of his second coming. How are we going to do that? Well, first of all, we need to stand firm. Secondly, we don't need to be alarmed or discouraged when we hear about wars and rumors of wars. And thirdly, we need to be ready. We need to be expectant. And we need to be active. There's a whole industry, the advertising industry, that's designed to make us feel discontent that how can our lives be complete without the latest gadget but you know i think living in the light of eternity means being content with what we have and realizing what is important 
friend of mine's got cancer, probably hasn't got very long left to live. What he said is that when you go through that, it makes you realize what is important. All those things that upset us and distress us, the person who's in the outside lane of the motorway doing 70 miles an hour when you want to go a bit faster and you get so head up, does it really matter? Not a bit of it. And when Christ is coming back, we realize what is important. If you put up the next slide, I love this quote by Barry Humphreys. Dame Edna, some of you may know him better as. It said this, I have always wanted more. I never had enough milk or money or socks or sex or holidays or first editions or solitude or gramophone records or free meals or real meals, sorry, or real friends or guiltless pleasure or neckties or applause or unquestioning love or persimmons. Of course, I've always had more than my fair share of most of these commodities, but it always left me with a vague feeling of unfulfillment. Where was the rest You see, unless you believe that Christ is coming again, unless you believe that there is a heaven to come, you're going to be a bit like Barry Humphreys. You will never be content in this world. You'll never be content with what you have because you will always be chasing more. Yet Christ tells us to be content, to stand firm, to be ready, to be expectant, and to be active. I love to taunt my friends in the Anglican Church only in a nice, jovial way. But if you look at the Book of Common Prayer, do you know they have the Christian festivals mapped out, even Easter, up into the year 8,500? I often joke with them, don't you think the Lord's coming back before 8,500 pounds a year? But you know, whenever you read about Christ coming back again in Scripture, it is always followed by the word, therefore, or now. Because you know, it didn't ought to be just of academic interest, but it ought to spur us into action. Not only action in our own lives, but also action in sharing it with other people as well. If you put up the next slide, my final slide is one of my favorite paintings of all time. I'm not a great lover of art, but I love this one by Van Gogh. You know, I think it looks as though a kid could could have done it at school. That's why I love Van Gogh's painting. And people pay millions for this sort of art. We went across to Amsterdam and I thought I'd see this painting, but in fact it turns out it's in a museum in New York instead, so we didn't get to see it. But if you notice this, you know, Starry Starry Night, it inspired the song by Don McLean. If you look at that painting with the stars in the sky, you'll see some lights in houses. But if you notice towards the bottom of that picture, there is a church And that church is in an absolute darkness. Now, I think sometimes art critics talk absolute rubbish about paintings. But I think Van Gogh did that deliberately. You see, because Van Gogh grew up in the church. He wanted to be a missionary. He wanted to be a preacher. Yet he felt he wasn't good enough. And I think he felt the church had let him down and had nothing to say. It's in darkness. But, you know, we have a message to preach, don't we? Christ is coming back again. We need to be ready for his return. We need to know what is going to happen before he returns, that we don't grow cold, we don't get deceived. We will expect the persecution. But one day we need to know that when he does come back, we're going to caught up to be with him forever. Sometimes it can instill fear. I remember as a kid thinking, what if he came back tonight? Would I be ready to go? But I think it ought to instill in his expectation. What's one of the virtual, the last phrases of Scripture in Revelation 22? Lord, come quickly. I wonder if that's the thought of our hearts this morning. 
to know what to expect before he comes, to know what to expect when he comes, and what our response ought to be to that. Listen to the sermon from four years ago and see if it's any different. Yeah. All right, let's just close together with a prayer, and then I think we may sing a hymn whilst the kettle's boiling. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of your word this morning. Father, we help that the plain things have been the main things, and the main things have been the plain things. And Lord, you will use these words to encourage us, that you haven't left us, this world in a mess, but one day you're coming back for those who love you. And Lord, we help, pray that you will help us to be expectant. You will help us to be looking forward to that great time when you come to call us to be with you forever. Amen.